our family was together, and I walked up on a conversation between two of my young nieces, and uh, one of them, uh, Reagan, she's about 10 years old, she was telling uh, the other, her, her cousin, about her friend, and she was so excited about what her friend got for Christmas, because her friend for Christmas got red beets, which apparently is a kind of headphone, right, like headphones, and I'm sitting there listening, and I'm thinking, Oh, that is terrible. Poor kid, right? I'm thinking like beets, like pull up out of the ground. Dirt. Here you go, kid. Merry Christmas, right? All right. Happy birthday, Jesus. Sorry your party's so lame. All right. Um, And I was thinking that. I was like, oh, man, I was so embarrassed to find out what they were actually talking about and realize that I had missed that. Okay, I know I make a lot of jokes about being the old guy with the gray hair, but at that point... I was like, okay, I'm just, it's time to give up, man. I'm just out of it, all right? Give me a, a pipe to smoke. Let me sit in the corner and read stories to kids now, okay? Um, but sometimes it can, it can feel that way as the church, right? That things are just moving. Things are advancing in the culture all around us, and we're like behind, right? We're falling behind. We don't even know how to keep up. We don't even know how to relate, how to catch up with what's happening in the culture around us. And so we try to cook up all these new ideas and, and try to stay up on what is happening. And, and, and we think that is how we impact the future as the church. But I'm here to challenge us today that, that that's not it. All right. Actually embedded in who we are as the church, back to our very roots. That is how we impact the future. All right. It's not about chasing something. It's about living out of who we've always been called to be all the way back from the beginning. As our culture is changing around us, there's a lot of tension and a lot of, of, of pushback about is the church going to be conservative or is the church going to be liberal? Which is it going to be conservative or liberal? And I'm here to tell you today that neither one of those labels even comes close to capturing the mystery that is the church of Jesus Christ in the world. Both of those labels are are just tragically inadequate to describe who the church is called to be in the world. Let me suggest another label, and it's the word radical. We are called to be a radical church. And when we say that word, a lot of times we think that, you know, maybe we're thinking like this political agenda or this extreme kind of thing or way out on the edges. But actually, the word radical doesn't mean that. When you pull it back to its actual meaning, the word radical comes from a Latin term, radix, which means, anybody got a guess? Root. It means root. To be the radical church is the church that returns to its roots and lives out of who we've always been called to be. Rooted and established in Jesus Christ. And then extending his love into the world in the most creative, in the most innovative ways. That flow out of us naturally, not because we're trying to keep up, but because we are living out of this ancient calling. And Jesus Christ has always been ahead of time because he is eternal all right and that's who we're called to be as a church so um you'll see here this next term under the word radical is this greek word uh the new testament is written in the language of greek and this is the greek word ekklesia and ekklesia is the greek word for the term church okay it's the greek word for the term 
church. Now, when the disciples were first being gathered together and when the Holy Spirit was first poured out on the church, they didn't go and invent a new word to call themselves, all right? They borrowed this term, ecclesia. It already existed in the Greek language. It was already invested with meaning when they got their hands on it. And they said, this is who we are. We are the ecclesia. A lot of times it gets translated as this word gathering or as this word assembly. But if you go down to the root of this word, then you'll find that it means this. The root meaning of the word ecclesia is called out ones. Called out ones. That is who we are designed to be as the church of Jesus in the world. Called out ones. Each of those three words is meaningful when we think about the idea of called within this biblical imagination, when we let the, our biblical memory and imagination come together on that word, we think about the idea of Jesus calling his first disciples, right? And then all throughout the story, he's calling people to follow him. And so when we break this down and what it means to be the church, that first word called, we connect to this core idea of discipleship, all right? The next word is out. That Jesus is calling us out to join him in his mission in the world. And so this word out represents that core idea of mission. And then the next is this word ones. Called out ones. It's plural. It gives us this deep sense that yes, Christianity is a very personal faith. Each of us is called into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ to walk with him in that. It's a decision that nobody else can make for us. All right. Nobody else can make that decision for you. No one else can surrender for you. It's very personal. But if we just keep it individual, then we're missing out on so much of what it means to walk in faith with Jesus Christ. Christianity is a personal faith, but it's a deeply communal faith. It's meant to be experienced within this idea of community. So over the next several weeks, we're going to take each one of these words, discipleship, mission, and community, and unpack what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ in the world as we pioneer the future of the church in our day, in our time, in this city, and beyond. Today we're going to look first at this idea of discipleship and how we see it being played out in the Gospels. With all of these, we do not intend to create our own definition for this. All right. We are intentionally rooting and establishing ourselves in the scriptures so that we draw the meaning out of what God has already designed and what God has already dreamed for each one of these things. So today we're beginning with that idea of discipleship. Uh, Turn with me to the book of Mark. And we're going to look at four different stories throughout this gospel that show us what discipleship looks like. Okay, in each of these four four stories, they have two things in common. All these stories have two things in common. So as we read through them, start looking for that. All right? Try to make the connections between these stories and see what are those two things that define discipleship. Let's start with uh, Mark chapter 1, and we're going to start with verse 16. Jesus, before we dive into your word, before we read this word, I pray that you would open up our minds and hearts. I pray that you would challenge us today. I pray that this word would be straight from you. I pray that this word would 
provoke us where we need it. Call us out where we need it. Help us. Challenge us today. See your name we pray. Amen. All right, starting right here. Uh, starting with verse 16. It says this, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men, it says in some translations. In other translations, I will teach you to fish for people. In other translations, I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets, it said, and they followed Jesus. At once, they left their nets and they followed Jesus. When, they had gone a little, when he had gone a little farther... Jesus saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. And they said to their father Zebedee, peace out, old man. All right? Just leaving their dad in the boat, like, see you, man. Sorry, good luck with the fish, all right? So they just drop it immediately. And begin to follow Jesus. They leave it all behind. All right, now turn to uh, Mark chapter 2 and look at verse, uh, starting with verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now, this is scandalous. This is provocative because the tax collector in this day was a deeply hated person. All right. Um, not just because they were collecting your taxes, but because when they were doing that, it was understood. Everyone knew that they were cheating you out of more money than what you actually owed. And they were using their power over you and you couldn't do a thing about it. There was nothing you could do to stop them. And they would look you in the eye and tell you that you owed this. and You knew you didn't owe that much. And they were robbing from you right there under the authority of the Roman government. They were hated. Jesus went to this person, a cheater, somebody who was a traitor to his own people, somebody that was robbing people blind, went right to him and said, I want you. I want you. Get up. Come follow me. Leave this thing behind you've been doing and come follow me. And he did. Now, uh, look at uh, chapter 8, starting with verse 34. You'll see this pattern continue. Remember, keep watching. What are those two things in common here? Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it? For you to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul. Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? Powerful. And now the last one in chapter 10, uh, verses 21 and 22. It tells us that there was a rich young man that came to Jesus. And, and he asked Jesus this question. What does it take for me to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do? I've got all of these riches all around me. I'm still looking for something. What does it take for me to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, follow the commands. You know what they are. And he said, I've been doing that my whole life. And then it says this. Verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. 
One thing you lack, Jesus said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. It was too much. It's too much of a challenge. See, Jesus didn't ask him to give money to the poor. Jesus asked him to become poor. And that was something he could not do. It was something he was not willing to do. If he would have recognized that Jesus was the treasure, it would have been worth the exchange, but he missed it. He missed it. So, there are two things in common in every one of these stories. Two things that connect them. We've got to remember that Mark is the first of the Gospels that is written. Okay, It doesn't show up first in your New Testament, right? but it's arranged differently. And, and scholars uh, agree that Mark seems to be the first of the Gospels written. The earliest one written down. And it seems that Matthew and Luke both draw heavily on Mark. And and a vast majority of both Matthew and Luke can be found right here in the Gospel of Mark. So here it is. This is is the first of them. This is that foundation. And right here from the very beginning, from the earliest of the Gospels, we see a very clear pattern develop of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Two things in common with all these stories. Number one, the call. The call is the same to every one of them. Come, follow Jesus me and number two the cost it will cost you everything it will cost you everything are you willing to leave it all behind in order to follow come follow me is the call and the cost everything it's an exchange old life for a new life one life for another are you willing to make that exchange so let's start here with this idea of the call. This is what it looks like, guys. This is what discipleship looks like. It's not some definition we're making up for it or defining just for within these walls and just for us. We're talking drawing this from the Gospels. This is what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. A lot of times when we talk about discipleship, we try to build all of these programs to make discipleship happen for us. What we end up doing is we overcomplicate what it actually means. And I really believe that the reason that we complicate it is because we actually want to make it easy. We make it complicated because we want to make it easy. Here's what I mean by that. We want to substitute the real thing that Jesus is calling us into for all of this activity that makes it look like something is happening in our lives. So I'm going to read the newest book. And when the next newest book comes out, I'm going to get that. Make sure I'm talking about that with my friends and, and, and trying to do that. I'm going to tweet out all of these deep, insightful thoughts that I'm having that I stole from somebody else, right? All of this activity. I'm going to be a part of this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And we're doing all this activity as if we think we can distract Jesus from the fact that we're not actually listening to what he says and obeying what he's asked us to do. We're substituting activity for intimacy. And it's not going to work. It's not going to work. We're complicating it because we want to make it easy. Jesus, on the other hand, keeps it very simple because he knows that it's hard. He knows that it's hard. 
He knows what he's asking us for. He knows what it's going to cost us. And he keeps it very simple. The call and the cost. The call and the cost. I want to really challenge you on that. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. We are drowning in information. And there's a drought of obedience. We are drowning in information and there's a drought of obedience. On your smartphone, in your pocket, in your purse, you've got every thought anybody has ever posted, right? At your disposal. Like right now, you could look up what some obscure, like, fourth century Christian scholar had to say about the incarnation of Jesus, and then you could talk eloquently about that. That's at your disposal. We've got all the information. There's a drought of obedience. What are we doing with what we know? What are we doing with what we've been challenged with. We cannot substitute activity for intimacy. Come, follow me, Jesus said. That's where it begins. Follow me. This isn't a new idea. It's a clear pattern right here in the earliest of the Gospels, but it actually goes even further back than that. If you read all the way through Scriptures, this is what it means all the way through Scriptures, through the whole Scripture. We've seen it from the beginning. Noah Right? It's the same thing. Noah, follow me. Noah, build a boat, even though, like, way before the flood comes. And yeah, they are going to think you're crazy, all right? But build a boat. Obey. Do what I'm asking you to do. Abraham, follow me. Go to the place that I will show you. Well, well, where is that place, God, where I show you, Abraham? Well, when will you show me? When you get there. So get up and move. Obedience. Come follow me. It's the same thing. Sarah, come follow me. Sarah, you are going to have a child. You're going to have a child that's going to bless the entire world. And then through your descendants, the entire world is going to be blessed and impact eternity. And Sarah's like, but do you even know who I am? Do you know how long I've been trying to have a child? Do you know how old I am? That's impossible. It's not going to happen for me. Sarah, trust me. Follow me. Follow me. Act on what I've told you. Live in obedience to what I've told you. Joseph, follow me. Even when you end up in prison for something that you didn't do. Even when the people who were supposed to spring you out of prison forget about you and they, and they leave you there. I haven't forgotten about you, Joseph. I am with you. Stay faithful. Will you keep following me? And what was intended for evil against you, I will turn around good if you'll stay faithful and walk with me. Moses, follow me. I want you to go back into Egypt where you are a fugitive wanted for murder, and then I want you to lead all of those slaves out and into freedom, across the desert towards the promised land. Follow me, and I'll show you where to go and move in obedience. Joshua and Caleb, follow me. Gideon and Deborah and Ruth, follow me. David, follow me. Esther, Follow me. It is the story of Scripture. He hasn't changed. He's always asking for these two things. He's giving the call and he's telling us the cost. And then he's saying, what are you going to do? Will you obey? Will you live in obedience? He keeps it simple and he keeps it clear. And the pattern has not changed. Don't just collect knowledge. Follow Jesus. I want you to study. I want you to dig into the word. I want you to know. I want you to grow and learn. But don't just collect knowledge. Follow Jesus. 
act on what you know. Don't just chase another experience. Follow Jesus. Don't just seek the next boost or fill up or Holy Spirit fix for your life. Follow, follow, follow. Move on what he's shown you. Here's the next piece. So that's the call. And the next piece that's consistent all the way through here is the cost. I want to go back to Matthew, uh, to Mark chapter 8, uh, verses 34 through 37 that we read earlier. When Jesus says this provocative, controversial statement about what it means to follow. And he says, if anybody is going to follow after me, then here's what it's going to cost. You have to lay down your life and take up the cross to follow me. Now, when we hear that, we think, yeah, I get that. I want to embrace the cross. The cross is so beautiful. The cross is this place where Jesus lays down his life for me, where he sacrificed for me. And his blood is poured out for my salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for the mercy and the grace and the beauty and the power of the cross. And we want to embrace that. But understand the context in which Jesus is saying this. In this part of the story, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. There is no religious sentimentality or spirituality associated with the cross when he says this. In their minds, the cross is one thing. It's a Roman execution tool. Do you see the provocative nature of what Jesus is saying in this moment? Lay down your life. Take up your cross and follow me. This isn't a Christian symbol yet. Nobody's wearing it in gold or silver or getting it tattooed on them. No, not at all. You're avoiding it at all costs. Jesus says, embrace the cross. It's radical. It's controversial. It's upsetting. It's unsettling. But Jesus says, this is what it means to be a disciple. The word disciple means student. And if you're a student in Jesus' school, then the cross is your curriculum. And this statement right here from Jesus is your syllabus. Take up your cross. Lay down your life follow him and it's, a, it's an exchange one life for another your old life for jesus's life the new life in you he goes on to challenge us what would it profit you what would it profit you like you you've got to you've got to calculate this cost you've got to measure it out and you've got to decide but say you could gain the whole world what would it profit you to gain everything and then lose your soul why wouldn't you be willing to make that exchange, your old life for Jesus' life, the old for the new? What would it profit you? What would it profit you to hold the winning Powerball ticket and yet lose your soul? I know some of y'all bought a Powerball ticket. Y'all were praying, Jesus, just help me. I promise I'll tithe on it, all right? I was praying you would win it too. We'll take that tithe. <laughs> But what would it profit you to hold the ticket and lose your soul? What would it profit you to work your way all the way up, to claw your way to the top of the company and lose your soul? What would it profit you to start the next great, like, startup business and lose your soul? What would it profit you to land the best score 
the best scholarship, the best internship, the best job offer straight out of graduation, and yet lose your soul? What would it profit you? What kind of exchange are you making? And what kind of exchange are you willing to make? What would it profit you to get tenure or to write the best-selling book or speak on the largest stages or lead the largest church? What would it profit you if you lost your soul in the process or to make the great next breakthrough discovery or get the job or get the better job or get enough money so you can quit your job? What would it profit you if you lost your soul or to move into that apartment, move out of the tent and into that apartment? That's what I need. Or to move out of the apartment now into this house that I own. Or to move out of this house that I own and now into this bigger house. But what would it profit you if you lost your soul? Or to win the award? Or to win her affection? Or to finally win his approval? What would it mean? And what would it profit you? If you lost your soul in the process. What kind of exchange are you willing to make? We're all making it. We are all making it. What exchange are you going to make? Jesus calls us to grasp this fact. And to understand that it would be pure foolishness. We all get that. It would be pure foolishness to exchange our lives for any kind of of physical wealth, no matter how much, no matter what number you put on it or what thing you put on it. We all understand that would be pure foolishness. But Jesus shows us the flip side of that calculation. And he says the disciple is the person who makes the wise calculation, who makes the wise measurement and says, I am willing to exchange my life for his. I want his life. I'm willing to lay down my life and take up the cross. This is the risk of Christianity. This is the gamble of discipleship. This is the sure bet of Jesus. Put it all on Jesus. Put it all on Jesus. This past week was the 60th anniversary of this moment where several missionaries had gone into a village to preach the gospel to people who had never heard this message before. And because of some of the politics within the village, some people were able to turn the village against these missionaries, and some of the villagers turned on the missionaries and murdered them while they were there to share the gospel with these people. One of those missionaries, the leader of the group, was a young man named Jim Elliott. And in his journal... He wrote these words about the calculation he had made about going into that village to take the gospel to these people. He said this, he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That is the risk. That is the gamble. That is the sure bet of Jesus Christ and of what it means to be his disciple. Jim Elliott understood that. After these missionaries were murdered, 
their wives picked up the mission right where they left off. And these young women went right to the same people who had murdered their husbands and they preached the gospel to them and showed them through their lives the depth of the mercy and grace and strength and power of Jesus Christ. And the people in that village were overwhelmed and became believers in Jesus Christ because of what they saw. It's the gamble. It's the risk. It's the sure bet of Christianity. You're not a fool to lose what you can't keep in order to gain what you cannot lose. There are no half measures when it comes to discipleship with Jesus. There are no half measures when it comes to discipleship with Jesus. There's the call and the cost. What will your response be? Jesus doesn't invite you to put your toe in the water to test out the temperature a little bit. Jesus says, get out of the boat and walk with me on the waves. That's the call of discipleship. Now, some of you today are not Christians. And I want to tell you that you are so welcome in this place. We are so glad you're here. You're honored guests with us. All right. We're glad you're here. Whatever brings you here. If there's a curiosity about Jesus and Christianity, we're so glad you're here. And we hope you're catching a glimpse of the compelling beauty of who Jesus is. If you've got questions, stick around and talk to us. Some of you are new believers. And we celebrate with you. We're thrilled for what Jesus is doing in your life and the change that you are experiencing. We're so happy about that. And we celebrate with you. Others of you are seasoned, mature Christians in your faith. You are mature disciples. And I want to take just the last couple of minutes and talk directly to you for a minute. So if that's not you, you can feel free to check out for a moment. You know, check your email or something like that if you want to, okay? But mature disciples, I want to talk to you directly for just a moment. You understand that Jesus has not called you to follow a church. He's not called you to follow a pastor. He's not called you to follow a small group. He's called you to follow him. And he's calling from, for obedience from you. And that's something that no one else can do for you. Okay? You get that, right? Nobody else can be obedient to Jesus for you. Nobody else can surrender to Jesus for you. Nobody else can grow in your faith for you. Nobody else can put their roots down for you. You get that. It's what Jesus is calling you into. It's a challenge to you. Okay? So let me challenge you with this. Are you looking to anyone else for that? Are you looking to anyone else to grow for you? Are you trying to lean on somebody else to make that growth happen for you? Nobody else can do it for you. Okay? You get that? Jesus has called you. Jesus has been speaking to you. Jesus has been challenging you. And you are the one that has to obey. And you are the one that has to surrender. And it's up to him what kind of growth he brings out in your life. But don't look around and ask other people to make changes so that you can grow. Jesus is calling for that from you. Okay? Nobody else can surrender 
for you. Understand this. Sometimes when I go out on the street, I love walking down Franklin Street. I love it. And I love running into people. And sometimes somebody will ask me for some change so that they can get a meal. Right? And, and as soon as I hear that, there's a thought that comes into my mind. It's that old saying. We've all heard it. Right? And as soon as somebody asks me that, this phrase comes into my mind. And I say in my mind, give a person a fish and you'll feed them for a day. Teach a person to fish and you'll feed them for a lifetime. And when somebody asks me for help, that phrase comes into my mind and I prop it up and I hide behind it. And I love hiding behind that phrase in that kind of moment when somebody is asking me to help them. But this week, the Holy Spirit challenged me with that same thought. And it wasn't about helping somebody else. It was about my own spiritual growth and my own spiritual life. And I hated it. I didn't like it then because there was nowhere to hide then. It was turned on me. And the Holy Spirit showed me that I'm sitting around waiting for Jesus to multiply the fish again. Jesus, give me a fish so I can eat today, right? I'm waiting for Jesus to multiply the fish. And I felt the Holy Spirit prompt me directly about Mark 1, right back to the beginning of where we started today and where this whole idea of Christian discipleship began when Jesus calls the first disciples. And his calling to them was, come follow me and I will teach you how to fish. And the Holy Spirit just struck me with that. Come follow me and I will teach you how to fish. We need each other. We need to lean into the church. We need to lean into our small group to help us mature and to grow. But listen, as mature believers, we also have to move in obedience. We also just have, we have to lean into Jesus. We have to understand what it means to follow him and to live in obedience to him. Nobody else can do that for us. Come follow me, and I'll teach you how to fish. Where are you in your walk with him? Are you still looking for somebody else to do that for you? Take that step. Move in maturity. Ask him to teach you what it looks like for you to seek out his wisdom, for you to study his word, for you to walk with him in prayer, not waiting for somebody else to do that for you. Okay? I love you. I love you. I love you. And that's why I say it. Because we need to be challenged in that. This call, come follow me, and the cost, everything, it hasn't changed. We see it all the way from the beginning of Scripture, all the way through the full sweep of this narrative of God's work in the world, all the way up into the New Testament where Jesus begins to call his disciples and show them the call and the cost. It goes all the way through the rest of the New Testament. It goes through Christian history to this point right now and to you and to me. It goes to our friend Joe Garrett. Joe and her friend Jamie have been a part of the church for a couple of months, a few months now. And um, we're going to show her story right now and show what it looks like to come to that place of surrender and to hear the call and to embrace the cost and to begin to walk as a disciple with Jesus. We're growing up with a very clear sense that there was something missing. I always, as a child, assumed that it was because my parents were divorced and my dad wasn't around a whole lot. 
Um, so I just figured that's what was missing. Then in junior high, I figured what was missing was I needed friends. I need to be cool. And so I got some friends. And then in high school, I thought, oh, it must be I need a boyfriend. Because I still had that sense of, like, something's missing. Something's not right. So I, I found a boyfriend, and that sense didn't go away. So I thought, I need to be one of the most popular people in school then. Because that is clearly what is missing from my life. Um, and so... I actually did end up being really popular in school. I had a great, um, like, job. I had great friends. It was, I felt happy. I had a boyfriend. Like, I I felt like things were good. Um, And then the summer before my senior year started, we moved. And I got really depressed. Because that big, that void, that sense that I was feeling came rushing back. Um, And I I didn't have any friends. And the only friends I could find were... um, people that were also lonely and depressed and sad Um, and so I actually began drinking almost every day and I started using drugs. Um, I moved out of my my family's house and moved in with a bunch of other drug addicts and pretty much just stopped going to school. Well my parents kind of figured out what was going on um, and so they put me in rehab. Um, I was there for about three weeks, didn't work but one day I got really really sick and I called my stepdad um, because I couldn't stop throwing up and he took me to the hospital. I remember clearly I was there for two weeks. I remember clearly they told him that I would have died if he had not brought me in because I was so sick. By some miracle, I finished high school. It was during summer school, but I graduated that year. So I don't even know how I managed to pull that off, but I did graduate. Um, but my good friend Amy and I, we decided, okay, something's still missing. We need to move out and we're going to be independent and we're going to have full-time jobs and we're going to be awesome. And after about six months of that, we started having a lot of conversations about like, is this really it? Like, is this life? Is this like the whole point of life? Like you go to work and you party on the weekends and like, really? That's it? So we decided we know what's missing. We've got it this time. College. We need to go to college. Um, So we both enrolled at college. We were roommates. And our first term at college is where everything started to change. She and our new friend Hillary, they started going to these campus ministry meetings every week. And they would always beg me to come. Come, come, come. It's really fun. There's really cute guys there. And I'm like, I didn't grow up with this whole church thing. Jesus, this mm, that's not for me. You guys go have fun. I'll meet you at the bar later. And that's what we would do. So they would go to these campus ministry meetings and then we'd meet up at the bar and have a good time. Um, But they kept bugging me to go. So finally, the last one before Christmas break, I'm like, fine, I'm sick of you asking me. I'll go. Fine. I'll just go. And so I went. And for the first time in my life at the age of 19, I heard the gospel. I'd never heard it before. I still remember very clearly everything that the guy said that night. And I sat there and I thought, I'm in big trouble because this guy, he's telling the truth. But I'm stubborn. And I'm independent. So I was, I left there that night going, I'm going to prove him wrong. So I signed up to go to this conference. I don't even know why. But I signed up for the conference and then I left going, I'm going to do this on my own. I've got this covered. I don't need Jesus. So every day I decide I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to quit doing drugs. I'm going to quit all this stuff. I'm just going to stop. Um, and so I lasted about three weeks our little group of friends we all got back together um, at a friend's house over Christmas break and we went out and we had a blast we were drinking and we were smoking weed and like all this stuff but the more I drank and the more I smoked that night the more sober I got and I was so frustrated 
and it hit me on the way back to my friend's house that night, I had totally failed. After only three weeks, I had totally failed, and I'd proven to myself that I couldn't do it on my own. And so that night, laying um, in the guest room at my friend's house, I just cried. And I told God, I was like, my life means nothing to me. It is just junk. It is worthless to me. So if you want it, Jesus, it's yours, because I don't even want it. And it wasn't an audible voice, but I remember very, very clearly feeling God just say to me, like, okay, I forgive you. Amen. You might not even want your life anymore. He wants it. He wants it. Discipleship is an exchange, one life for another. Your old life or Jesus' life. That's exactly what he did for us on the cross. He loves you so much. And he wants to bring you into relationship with his father. He loves you so deeply that he laid down his life, exchanged his for yours. He wants you. He loves you. And he's calling you. Will you come follow me? He's up front about the cost. It'll cost you everything. Will you follow? Will you make that exchange? Will you take that step? Will you make that risk and gamble that short bet? Jesus Christ. Will you do that? For some of you, you need to make that decision for the very first time today. If that's you and you're feeling like the Holy Spirit is grabbing a hold of you and you feel like Jesus himself has been saying that to you today, come follow me. And you want to make that decision and I'm going to challenge you right now to do something really courageous and that's just to put your hand up right now in the middle of this room. That's a decision you want to make. Amen. Awesome. Praise the Lord. Awesome. Fantastic. One life for another. Come follow me. Beautiful. We're serious about this. We want to be about this as a church. We understand it's at the root of who we're called to be. And so I want you to grab a hold of one of these today. It's just it's called the discipleship path. And it's what we have been doing it's simple steps and it's just five simple ways points along the path points on the map of how to move in discipleship with jesus so grab a hold of one of these we can't make that decision for you we can't surrender for you or obey for you but as a church we want to create an environment that empowers discipleship we want to encourage that so grab a hold of that and be a part of call is very clear and the cost has been laid out for us you are not a fool if you lose what you can't keep in order to gain what you can never lose exchange one life for another your old life for new life Thank mm-hmm. you.